Hello, and welcome to the Innovate IPM podcast, where we are passionate about the future of the industrial projects professions, presenting you the best of project management, people, and practices, combining the wisdom of time-tested methods with the cutting-edge technologies and advancements that are modernizing our craft. Our mission is to contribute to the growth and progress of the industrial project management community. It's time to talk scope, schedule, and budget. Let's start the show. Hello, everybody. This is Rob Williams, your host of the Innovate IPM podcast, and so glad to be presenting to you this final podcast of 2019. We have done an amazing job. Uh, you as listeners, all the guests who have been, been on and the people who have helped me produce this podcast and get the word out. I appreciate it so much and uh, I want to wish everybody a happy new year coming up and a happy holidays that has just passed us by. You know, we started the podcast back in May, I think, of 2019 this year and we've got, we're up to episode 13. We've got some great reviews on iTunes. We have a great uh, amount of people listening from around the world. I'm most certainly grateful for all of that. Since starting the podcast, we've opened our studio down in the Clear Lake area of Houston, Texas. We've had events down there. We are working on getting you trainings down there. This is where we really want to help people. This is our goal in the Innovate IPM world, this machine that we're building. It's designed that we can touch on people, practices, and technology in the engineering and construction sectors. This is where we intersect talent, technology, and business savvy. We want people who are looking for better wages, salaries, job security, people who want to come up with that Swiss Army knife skill set, so that they can become in demand in their in their chosen occupation. Uh, and we want to help people avoid the pitfalls as the job market changes, the business environment changes, the skills that are required um, of, of particular project management, project engineering, project controls type occupations are changing. Whether you're a project manager out of college, middle manager looking for an edge, Maybe you're a project control specialist looking for an edge, or uh, uh, maybe you manage a small to mid-sized company or an independent consultant. Whatever you are, whatever function that you serve inside of engineering and construction, whatever industry that you serve in, our goal and our passion is to make sure that we can provide you with a, a vehicle to grow yourself and empower yourself within your career or your business and that's all I'm going to say about Innovate IPM in 2019. Again, uh, nothing but gratitude and looking forward to 2020. Today's guest is the CEO of SNA Software. He is a former Naval commander and a retired officer. He's got a tremendously interesting background uh, because of this, and he's got some very special insights that he can provide to the project program management aspects of what we all do. Um, I think the most interesting takeaways that I found while having this conversation with Nick um, was a digital transformation, which is a, a term that's become a bit of a buzzword these days. 
Uh, I, I don't think it's lost meaning, but you could say it's a buzzword. But digital transformation is not new. All right, we've already seen a first, second, and according to Nick, we're at the end of a third wave and now entering a fourth wave of digital transformation. According to Nick, there are specializations that uh, are going to need to expand on their skill sets, learn to go broad for the future of their career. There are going to be skill sets that at one time have disappeared that are going to see a rebirth with the coming technologies. So you don't want to miss a minute of this conversation. It's very insightful. Nick is a very educated guy. But uh, but before we get started, I just want to make one more last quick disclaimer. Uh, my file, the one that, that I'm talking through on this, didn't record very well. Um, it's audible. You can hear you can hear what I'm saying. And fortunately, I didn't speak very much in this interview. Nick just sort of took the show, and thank goodness for that. His quality is is great. So when you get to mind and you hear hear how bad it sounds, just disregard the quality and and enjoy the content. The rest of it is uh, is great. And now, without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, this is our conversation with Mr. Nick Pisano of SNA Software. Enjoy. Hi, Nick. How are you? I'm doing well, Rob. How are you today? Um, pretty good. Uh, the sun came out for the first time in the week in the Houston area, so we appreciate that over here. How's the weather over there? Well, uh, right now in Orlando, we have another day of liquid sunshine, uh, which is uh, welcome. You know, yeah. the plants love it. And uh, we're, you know, below 89 degrees, and so people are breaking out their winter uh, Winter coats. Wintertime, right? Before, uh, once it hits under 89, you're, you're in winter in Florida. That's correct, yeah. <laughs> uh, same downtown Orlando. Yeah, same, same here, no doubt. So uh, just wanted to uh, have a conversation with you about uh, about your career, about the company that you run, and, uh, and whatever kind of insights that you have for the industry. Um, so if you don't mind, let's, let's start with your career path. You've got a very interesting career path from Navy commander on into your current role as the CEO of SNA Software. Uh, if you don't mind, share a little bit about that. Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, yeah, I, I had a very fortunate career in the Navy. I enlisted um, in the Navy at the age of 18 years old, as a matter of fact. And um, after my enlistment, I had you know always really been involved in information management of some sort. First worked um, in the area of collecting uh, photo intelligence information uh, as part of my job when I was an enlisted man. And so uh, the you know the um, challenge in the intelligence area. I was in the U.S. Navy, by the way, for 23 years. Uh, just as a preface. Very nice. And so. Um, you know, the, uh, the challenge is always having too much information and then being able to process that information so that it gets to the right uh, people in a timely manner so that it's actionable. Uh, while I was in the Navy, I got my uh, bachelor's degree when I was still enlisted in my first master's degree and um, was direct commissioning, as a matter of fact. Um, went through Newport, Rhode Island and um, became a uh, commissioned uh, U.S. Navy Supply Corps officer. After my first sea duty, 
Uh, I was selected by, at that time, uh, an organization that existed in the Navy was called the Naval Material Command to be part of the original uh, acquisition corps in the United States Navy. The Air Force had an acquisition corps. So when, when you say acquisitions, is that, uh, is that similar to procurement in our world? Exactly. Procurement systems, um, also program management. Back when uh, there were the various uh, procurement scandals um, in the Department of Defense that hit the news concerning, you know, thousand-dollar toilet sheets, uh, seats, and uh, six hundred-dollar ashtrays, I actually took over the NAS Miramar organization um, as the officer in charge because of a of a similar situation. Um, the ashtray really didn't cost $600. That was uh, the headline that uh, hit the news after we had done a uh, reverse engineering to determine what one item would cost if it had to be um, fabricated. Uh, it actually cost, you know, like $351, which was too much anyway. But, um, <laughs> but um, you know, to make a long story short, the reason why they pay so much money is because you can't have holes in the cockpit of a, of a, a fighter jet. And uh, there's a good reason not to have an ashtray in there because you're not allowed to smoke in there. And so um, when you uh, have a hole in the cockpit, you ground the aircraft. And then when you're due to deploy overseas in an operational assignment, that becomes a priority one acquisition. And so it turned out to be a systemic issue in the Navy uh, that I discovered where you know, uh, there was not enough discretion used in certain purchases, um, you know, in order to get either ships or aircraft deployed, you know, to meet whatever the operational assignment is overseas. We had these newfangled things called uh, personal computers that were hitting the market, which sort of ages me a little bit, probably. And uh, so I had a uh, an admiral who uh, wanted to know, you know, how we could use PCs and microprocessors to um, improve our business systems and our acquisition systems and logistics. And so early on, um, I adopted the new technology and found ways to apply that new technology. So that's actually how I got into high tech. From there, of course, as my career progressed up to the Pentagon, uh, where I finally worked for the Undersecretary of Defense for Acquisition and Technology was the office that existed at the time. My main concerns were um, program management and you know, our procurement systems and how we use data to inform us um, in program management in terms of um, you know, pro uh, program controls and performance management within our projects and our programs. And on the logistics and acquisition side or procurement side, um, you know, how those two marry up. Once you deploy a system to ensure that you have a, you know, sufficient logistics to support that system once it gets out into the fleet. Um, and, and as a matter of fact, when, uh, when I went out to the OSD staff, um, you know, I was given a great deal of latitude to define what my job was. And so the title that I picked was Lead Action Officer of Integrated Program Management. Yeah, I get to pick the title myself because um, I have been involved in the normalization or rationalization of data uh, within the Department of Defense, within the U.S. Navy, regarding the systems that inform us about project controls and performance management. And so it became clear to me that it was necessary to look at more than one aspect um, of what performance is. You know, it, it's not solely defined by earned value management. It's not solely defined by 
the schedule and where you are on the schedule. It's not solely defined by your resource management systems or your financial management systems. It's really a combination of those. And so uh, my boss at the time was a man by the name of uh, Gary Crystal. He was a senior executive service, civil servant, uh, brilliant man. And his boss, was, who brought me to the Pentagon, was a gentleman by the name of Dan Zaluzniak, who was the senior SCS in DOD at the time. And uh, I remember Gary asking me, after I picked my title, he said, what is integrated program management? And my response to him was, uh, well, I'm not quite sure, sir, but I'm going to find out. Perfect answer. It was the perfect answer. So uh, it's, uh, it's the answer, uh, you know, that... Uh, of a good naval officer, as a matter of fact. And for veterans that may listen to your podcast, they'll, they'll get the inside joke uh, as well on that comment. But I did take action on that. And I, I managed, you know, Pentagon is a, is a great tour of duty. If you, um, you know, if you have a real job, I guess, you know, if you have something that you enjoy doing. And I was able to talk with experts uh, in the field and domain experts in the various areas related to program management and acquisition procurement in, in uh, the civilian term and um, put together a team and collaborative um, organizations. And we began to define what constituted integrated program management. Okay. And so a lot of the common schemas that exist today uh, that use in industry as well as in government actually came about from that process uh, when I was on active duty. And so it was a you know very fulfilling career. I really enjoyed it a great deal. It's kind of interesting to me because what you're describing is really sort of it almost sounds to me, and, and, and maybe I'm I'm too young to know, but it almost sounds to me like a first wave digital transformation that's taking place with your job and your occupation and where you were in the military at the time. You know, back in the day, we used to have typing pools, believe it or not. You know, we used to have a, a pool of, you know, 10 people working in a typing pool to write letters or write instructions or whatever, you know, whatever else was out there. And so when we first began to apply digitization, it was to replace, you know, the 10 people that were there to improve productivity. You know, we put in our PC on everyone's desk and said, guess what? You know, there's this thing called, as a matter of fact, at that time, it wasn't Microsoft Word. It was WordPerfect. Um, yeah, it was the first uh, part of that first wave. And uh, for spreadsheeting, it wasn't uh, Excel. It was, um, at least we used VisiCalc at the time, I think. There were a couple of others at the time. Harvard Graphics was out there. And... Um, but now everyone could do their own spreadsheets, you know, their own simple spreadsheets to figure things out. People could uh, write their letters. We introduced email and so forth. And now, you know, you didn't have to write letters anymore for quick communication. You could, you know, collaborate electronically. That, that really was the first wave, was just to digitize what already existed um, from a manual perspective. The, the, the second wave, I think, or the second generation was to then perform analysis on that data. That second wave was really concentrated on, you know, automating the functions of, of us meets, subject matter experts and domain leaders. You know, and instead of them having to, you know, use... Um, use VisiCalc or whatever it was, or Excel, or, or uh, you know, use the scientific calculator that they may have had on their desk, you know, we could give them uh, tools, automated tools that, you know, were COTS 
commercial off-the-shelf, non-developmental type of tools that would fulfill that little niche. And so there really was the second wave. We're probably near the tail end of the third wave and into a fourth wave, fourth generation software. Um, and, and that's, you know, really the area that I reside in now, I think, with the solutions that, you know, I bring to the market as well. And, and it's part of the progression, I think, of, um, of the industry as a whole, but also, you know, I've pretty much uh, kept up with what was going on uh, in my own personal life and, and career. So, yeah, you know, the, the third wave was begin, you know, to look at transformation, normalization and rationalization of data. And there's still quite a bit of debate about the best way of doing that. I have my own opinions that are very strong concerning that. Um, business intelligence has been around since the beginning of the third wave of digitization. What I, you know, what I call the third wave of digitization, and that is, you know, if you have a bunch of data, you approach it as if it's flat, and then you uh, apply a team of uh, data scientists and data analysts against it in order to imbue meaning from it. Um, you know, we were doing that back in uh, the 1970s in intelligence. And to be really frank, I think it's a step backward. I think that, um, you know, if, if you have an automated process and it's going to take a team of people in order to process it, then it's not automated any longer. So really, the, the uh, you know, the insight here is two things. Number one, most of the data that we deal with already has a meaning to it. Now, you know, without getting too technical, um, you know, you can't violate the second law of thermodynamics, but digitization comes pretty close to it. The data that we have out there, uh, particularly the data that's already been processed in our business systems and in our uh, day-to-day systems that already have tagging associated with them, they already have meaning in them. But the lexicon is different. You know, it's a very highly competitive market. We live in a capitalist economy. And so, uh, digital companies try very hard to uh, make their data as opaque as possible. But to be brutally frank, that's really in opposition to the nature of information, of, of uh, information theory, as well as uh, information economics. Uh, most information can no longer be completely opaque. And so as a result of that, you know, really the key to normalization and rationalization and contextualization of data is having the Rosetta Stone. It really goes back to an earlier um, concept. Champagnon uh, decided to, you know, was trying to figure out the best way of uh, deciphering the hieroglyphs in Egypt. They found the Rosetta Stone that allowed them to um, interpret the hieroglyphs through. Right, that's right. Yeah. And so it's it's a similar issue, I think, with the information that we're dealing with today. And that is, in each of the types of information that we need, we just need a Rosetta Stone to be able to decipher what that lexicon is uh, within those domains. And then once we are able to do that, we can integrate that data to get to, you know, properly so that we can get a more holistic view of what's happening within within the uh, organization or within the system that we're dealing with. Sure. So let me let me make sure I understand everything correctly. What what we're really talking about is it sounds to me like we're talking about fragmentation of data across what is probably um, multiple multiple data platforms. Yes. In order to aggregate that data into something useful that you can analyze, you need that Rosetta Stone that you're describing. That's correct. Okay. Um, 
And otherwise, you know, you're also just reinventing the wheel, right? A great deal of effort already went into developing the various lexicons that imbue meaning into the information, into the bits and bytes that we have out there. So uh, by essentially deciphering uh, the, you know, that meaning through the Rosetta Stone, it, you know, you don't have to go through all that effort again, right? Right. So it, it makes it unnecessary to have a team of, you know, data analysts and data scientists to, you know, look at data that it already had meaning to begin with to imbue it with new meaning and new tags, right? That may not necessarily be correct. And this is what you mean when you, when you say this is really more of a step back. When you guys were already doing this stuff with the data back when you were doing it in the 70s, and, and now we're kind of on this swing back around. Everybody's really uh, excited about data and pulling data from all these places, but, but it was already there to begin with. That's correct. Yeah. Um, you, yes, yes, you're, you're 100% correct. Well, and, and this makes sense to me because, you know, when, when I look at, uh, when I look at uh, construction projects, so I came out of the field and my construction experience, um, when, I, when I got into product controls, was really to go capture all that data, to go grab the data from the piping foremans and the civil foremans, turn that into something that we could analyze the project against, and then plug that into the system so that the decision makers could make decisions. But it was a multi-step process. There was multiple people involved. Back then, it was all on paper. I think that's changing for the better now. But what, to, to your point, it's, it's not, even, even if the data is captured electronically versus on paper, it's still the same data. And we're still that's doing right. the same things with it. Yes, yes, yeah. you were 100% you were correct. Um, you know, what's sort of interesting is um, as we deal with data and information, we think we know what is important to know in our systems and all the rest. You know, there are approved predictive analytics in various domains of program management and procurement, technical performance. Uh, that was another area especially for me. And in, in, uh, when I was on active duty in the Navy, I was co-developer of a methodology for uh, tracking technical performance management. Once we put this data together, I think what we're going to find, you know, using the concept of knowledge discovery through data is that there are better things that we need to know. There are better predictive analytics and metrics that are give us quicker and more discrete information than was possible before. I think we're going to be looking at the world through a different lens as a result. And we really haven't even scratched the surface on that yet. I mean, we, we sort of know, you know, we sort of know that it's necessary for us to be able to do this. Uh, there was a congressional commission last year on debt, you know, data-driven decision-making and policy-making that had some very specific recommendations on how uh, all levels of government should use information to inform their policy-making. You know, it's very hard sometimes um, with ideological um, perspectives thrown into the mix. I think what we're going to find is that this wealth of information is going to provide us with insights that we never had before. And I think that that is really the fourth generation that we're just on the precipice of now. I couldn't agree more. I think that's a, that's a very uh, interesting way to look at it too. I think I've had similar thoughts, but, but probably haven't articulated them that well. That is uh, That really opens up my mind to a lot of things. And this is something that 
This is something that we talk about a lot when we talk about digital transformation. We don't really know what it looks like. We think we know, but but really there's there's so many variables to it and there's so many things that we don't understand because we haven't gotten that point yet where we can take this, this really high-level view that you just used uh, Neil Armstrong as an example for. Until we break the atmosphere, we don't really know what we're going to turn around, look back, and see and this is going to create um, this is going to create elements to this transformation that that were unintended for better or for worse. I think the um, you know I, it's it's sort of funny that a lot of um, there there's been a lot of uh, literature lately about fear of AI. I mean, it, and we haven't really even you know gone very far with it, and there's already backlash regarding it. Uh, I couldn't help but to wonder. Uh, you know, I always think about this and use this as an example. Was when computer aided drafting came out. So we had uh, in Excel too, or uh, digital spreadsheets too, because what it took to do spreadsheets back then was labor intensive and it took a lot of people sometimes, depending on yes. the complexity of it. Well, when, when those people got replaced with, you know, a digital spreadsheet, and now one person can do the job of three or four, what, what happened to those people? You know, yes. did they disappear? No, I think they, 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 they use the skills that they learned and transferred them over to a similar career, I believe. I mean, you can correct me if I'm wrong. The, the, the other thing is all of these, you know, draftsmen are a great example. Draftsmen are still in high demand. It's still one of the most safe jobs you can go get and earn, earn a high income without a college degree. So these jobs didn't just vaporize. They just changed. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a process. I mean, there there are some skill sets that sort of disappeared that I think we're going to find um, there's, there's going to be new demand for. Um, you know, one of the things that we do uh, at SNA Software, just to talk about my day job just a little bit, which really is consistent with, you know, my career anyway. At, at SNA, I mean, you know, I, I, I would be talking about this stuff and probably be involved in it regardless. Um, whether or not there was an SNA or not. But part of the reason why SNA uh, software exists is because um, I felt very strongly about, you know, integrated program management and information and data capture and data transformation. I had had an idea. I felt that it was the right approach and that's how this company came to, came about. You know, of course there are other smart people in the world and a lot of other folks are, you know, going down the same path now, uh, which is great. You know, I, I think that that's fantastic. Sure. Um, our, you know, our approach, however, is just slightly different. And that is, um, I think that among the fourth wave, what we're going to find is that the old model of COTS, which is a point solution that is fixed in its functionality, that is fixed in its visualization, <clears throat> I, I think that that model will quickly disappear, um, at least as an enterprise solution. Certainly not, you know, it would not be applicable as an integrated program management solution or integrated data solution. Mm-hmm. And the reason why I say that is once you capture your data, in today's world, given all of the various um, middleware that's out there in the, the operating environment, .NET and elsewhere, things that Oracle's doing as well, 
almost anyone can put together a visualization. You can put together a visualization off of an Excel spreadsheet, make it look, you know, much better than, you know, what things looked like 10 years ago. Sure. Um, the key is in the data, in the quality and the insight and contextualizing the data properly. That's really where the value is now. And what that does then is as we go through our knowledge discovery and data and begin to find, you know, the new nuggets that exist out there to redefine what, are, what the new predictive analytics are, is it really puts the subject matter specialist or expert back in the driver's seat. It takes it out of the hands of the IT person and puts it really where it belongs, and that is in the hands of the SME. Uh, in the hands of the program manager or the analyst. Now, you know, of course, their job is going to change, right? Do we really need a cost, a person who's only a cost analyst? Do we really need a person who's only a financial analyst? I, I would say no. You know, do we need a person who's only a scheduler or a systems engineer? You know, well, maybe the systems engineers will still be a specialty because, you know, we haven't completely incorporated everything that they do there, but, you know, that needs to be part of integrated program management. Um, where I think we're going to find that the new SMEs are going to be integrated program managers, integrated program analysts, information analysts, uh, business intelligence analysts, or whatever you want to call it, business analytics analysts. Um, you know, those jobs will slightly evolve. It's not that those those needs are no longer are, are no longer needed. Those those requirements or those skill skill sets are no longer needed. It's just that they're broader. Because if you're just going to look at earned value management, I, I think that you're limiting yourself to, you know, probably especially that's going to disappear very quickly. Right. If you're looking at earned value with schedule, with risk, with technical performance, with, um, you know, some of the concepts of systems engineering to be proactive in what's happening within the program and providing that information to the program manager, you're going to prove your value, right? Um, to the organization and to the effort. I agree. And so one skill set that has sort of disappeared in a lot of areas though, that I think we're going to see a rebirth of is, is uh, systems analysis. Yeah. Uh, back, you know, I, I mentioned that back when I was on active duty, um, I had taken over a program that was failing for the um, joint procurement system for the Department of Defense across the various services. And they were developing a software system that could take care of purchasing. And so I became the program manager. It was the first program that I took over. And they were, you know, behind schedule and over budget. And uh, so after taking a look at things for my first 30 days, you know, I skinnied down the, the organization a, a bit because they had really too many hands in in the, you know, stirring the pot, which a lot of times is the case in some programs, particularly developmental programs. But the people who really were of, of very much of value to me as a program manager were the individuals who had the technical skills to understand the technology that we were dealing with, but they also understood the systems and the needs of the system. They were called systems analysts. So they were that interpreter. They were like human Rosetta Stones between the technology and the non-digital systems, the human systems. Yeah, you know, people have to use that information. People have to know how to use that, you know, that 
that digitization, if, if you're not building it so that people can use it, then it's useless. Mm-hmm. And so what I think, well, you know, what we're going to find is a rebirth of the systems analyst. Um, in our own company, we've, we have sort of taken that concept. And so rather than just selling somebody a piece of software and walking away and, you know, you renew your maintenance and support, you know, you can call us on the telephone if you want to know, you know, what button to click. Um, we really take the time and we have SMEs that understand the challenges faced by our customers who are interested in the maximization of their data that involves transformation and integration of that data so that they can improve their processes, their profitability, their productivity, their communications, all the rest, right? Really, when you think about it, in today's world, digitization really drives organizational improvement if you apply it the right way. Yeah. And so we take the time to understand the business of our customers before, you know, before the sale is made, you know, instead of learning on their dime, our, our concept is to help them fix the problem instead of just leaving it to the consultant to figure out, you know, who's some third party who, you know, maybe their, uh, maybe their motivation is butts and seats and they would prefer to manage you know, through Excel and PowerPoint, right? They, they want to party like it's 1997. <laughs> right? Yeah, unfortunately, um, that seems to be the norm. With, uh, yeah. Well, that, that is not our model. Our model is to disrupt that model. Our model is to smash that model. Excellent. And to reduce the overhead uh, that's associated with that. And, and the, um, you know, it, it really represents a barrier. That model or that type of thinking really, really represents a barrier to information optimization. And, you know, we stand for nothing else if not information optimization. And so when people ask us, you know, what our business is, you know, we talk about integrated program management and it is, it's part of our core business. We talk about visualization, business analytics, all the rest, but really our core business, our our core expertise is in data capture transformation and contextualization because that is, that is it. That is the nugget. Once you have that, you can do anything with that information uh, on behalf of your customer, on, be, on behalf of the organization. Our technology is built on an open system. It's, you know, what I would call fourth generation uh, software technology. It's open on the back end and open on the front end. It doesn't care about the data that it attaches to. It'll assume the way that you structure that data automatically. And it comes with the full library of visualization tools as found in the, the .NET operating environment as you know, reporting, a native reporting capability, a native chart graphing capability, time-phased engine, a hierarchical engine. It'll, it'll um, organize that information in all of the myriad ways that we organize information automatically. So we go in and we will provide the 80% solution out of the box. You know, we, we learn the different domains and we put what's considered to be COTS functionality with, on top of this open system. So that way our customers can um, realize immediate ROI in applying those solutions to what their challenges are, maybe in program management or some other area. But our customers tend to quickly figure out that they just bought something that can fill virtually all of their gaps uh, and automate much more than what they initially anticipated. 
you, you sort of have to bring the customer along. If you go in and you tell somebody that, you know, I have this really cool technology that can integrate everything and that will give you everything that you want, you're going to sound like a huckster, right? And to a certain extent, you know, it, it's not, you, you wouldn't be completely honest because, you know, there are certain things that you're going to have to work on to get them to where they need to go, right? I mean, it, it takes some education of the customer as well as additional familiarization of their particular culture. Uh, but, you know, we, we take the time and the effort to do that. And so what, we, what happens is, is that we tend to start out small in an organization. And then once the customer figures out what they purchased, uh, which is something that's really cool and extremely useful, uh, they begin to, on their own initiative, applying that technology to solve other challenges that uh, have eluded them you know, eluded being solved by point solutions and so forth. Um, so that leads me, I guess, to, to the last point regarding our approach. Yeah, so yes, you know, to answer your question, you know, it's sort of like professional services, but a little bit different uh, because we're there to solve the problem. And we sometimes we do have people who are dedicated to a customer um, and they will work solely for that customer to solve, solve their issues and work with their, with their SMEs and their IT organization to expand the use of the solution. But the other thing that we do is that we tend to disrupt the best-of-breed approach to software. The best-of-breed approach is, you know, was a concept that was applied widely in a lot of industry back in the 1990s and early 2000s where they would uh, purchase a piece of software for earned value management, and then they would buy a, a scheduling application, and then they would buy, you know, a financial analytical oh, yeah. application yeah. and so forth. And then you try to put this information together, you know, through various types of um, tra data transfers, Excel spreadsheets, PowerPoint, so forth. And, you know, at the end of the day, you're trying to, uh, you know, draw a horse and you, you have something that sort of looks like a camel. <laughs> um, I mean, it, it was necessary. It was the best that they could do at the time because of the limitations of the applications that were, were being built at the time, which were focused on, you know, specific domains, right? So, I mean, you know, I can't really fault the approach that anyone took at that time, but hey, that is no longer necessary. So we tend to displace multiple applications when we go into an, an organization so that there's one trusted source of information where the information is captured, transformed, and properly contextualized. So we have an ETL solution that will capture that data in the native format, uh, turn, you know, uh, uh, rationalize it into a neutral schema, and tag it so that that information can be, um, can be properly analyzed and so forth um, you know, by a very powerful analytical engine. Um, then, let's say you're doing earned value management. Um, you can be doing simple earned value management in commercial projects. Not everyone does it, but I mean, there is a form of EVM that's being used. I know in the oil and gas industry, we have some oil and gas customers out there that were using EVM. It's very heavily used in federal and aerospace and defense. Um, and we're seeing it more and more in construction in some other areas. So we have a, a native earned value management uh, capability. We can also capture data out of, uh, you know, the usual suspects uh, that are out there, such as NPM, Cobra, and uh, the other applications as well. 
so that if people don't want to get off of those systems of record, uh, there, are, there are good reasons for not wanting to because of regulatory restrictions. And, you know, it took them five years to set something up and, you know, they don't necessarily want to change over to something else right away. We can uh, help them put that, all of that information together into a trusted source of information, into a data lake or data repository, and then provide a very powerful analytical and reporting capability off of our application known as Proteus. We can capture risk from the various risk analysis tools that are out there. We can also incorporate a native risk capability within the application. Uh, we can also calculate earned value off of the schedules. So we can do that also in, uh, in Proteus. We can calculate uh, earned value management and provide a simple earned value management solution directly off of P6 and Microsoft Project. Um, we're also beginning more and more to get into capture of um, financial management data, particularly cost estimating type data to verify piece part cost um, as we achieve different milestones within the project and to project costs uh, in future milestones, which mostly today is, is you know, captured manually and, and um, is, you know, done mostly by financial analysts still in Excel spreadsheets and so forth. So we're beginning to, to automate that, that process as well. And some of our customers have also uh, used the application to track contractual procedural compliance and do resource planning and resource management along their project. Okay. A resource loaded uh, schedule, or if you have some other sort of resource loaded Excel spreadsheet or whatever it is that's out there, we can uh, capture that data. And what is important about being able to capture it and so forth and put it into a database is that it becomes uh, persistent, what we call in the in the, the IT world persistent. That means that it, it exists and will always exist. It's not dependent upon, you know, some individual maintaining their Excel spreadsheet. That information exists in an actual system and the calculations are done through actual code, right, that always exists. So things are consistent. It also provides us then with the ability to uh, track that same data over time so that it doesn't just exist in, in a particular moment. We can see what the trends are for all of that data. So we can see, you know, what's going on there. Finally, probably the most significant thing that uh, we have been doing over the last year, um, the Defense Contract Management Agency, which um, monitors um, the major programs within the Department of Defense, they're required to submit data to a central repository on their performance management. And they use our software to um, apply test metrics against that information that's being um, submitted to test the health and fidelity and accuracy of the information that's coming from those underlying systems. So if you're a program manager and, you know, you want to make sure that uh, even on the commercial side, so, you know, that, that's from a government compliance standpoint, but on the commercial side, why would I want to do that as a program manager? And the reason why you would want to do that, I mean, first of all, it's going to affect your profitability. Um, when I was a program manager on three separate occasions, I wanted to make sure that the type of information that I was getting out of my systems, which included both cost and schedule, the things were properly foot and tied so that I had some confidence um, in my ability to know how to distribute my resources when I did experience risk in particular efforts. If I suddenly find out that that money was, you know, funny money, that I thought, you know, those resources that I thought I was going to have down the line, you know, because when you really think about it, you know, 90% of your project is pretty easy. 
you know, most projects, 90%, people know what they're doing. Things are pretty well planned out. Uh, people are, you know, performing well. It's that 10% that will eat up your all of your management reserve yeah. and that will demand resources, you know, all too often beyond your management reserve, you know. Those are the hard nuts to crack. It's best to find out what those hard nuts are as early as possible so that you can anticipate the types of resources, the types of expertise that you need to bring on board in order to get out over those hard spots or, you know, to come to the point where you have to make a trade-off analysis. You know, hey guys, you know, you're not going to get X, Y, Z in exactly the way that you want it. Right. You know, we're going to have to compromise here. You're going to get the 90 percent solution. You're not going to get the 100 percent solution of what you want. We're going to stop development and we're going to produce something now. Right. We're going, to, we're going to take the value out of the effort that we've put into it now and actually produce the system or deploy the system, uh, you know, as it is now so that we can at least get our return on investment. Um, in order to make that trade-off and to make that argument with senior management, you know, in order to present that argument to senior management and so forth, you know, you need that, you need that information. Mm-hmm. And so you want to have confidence in your underlying systems. And then once you have confidence in your underlying systems, then you know that when you're going through your project controls and you're getting your, um, you know, looking at your predictive analytics and you're talking to your engineers or your technical people, that you have, you know, confidence that, you know, you have that you're on top of the bubble, right? I really started out, you know, uh, aside from being a techie, I, you know, my emphasis has always been in program management. So I really didn't start out, you know, as a naval officer and so forth. We, you know, we're not analysts. Um, a little bit different than, you know, some of the other services. I know that the Air Force and some other services actually do have people that are analysts in the various program offices. Um, I mean, we do have... Uh, business managers and business financial managers and so forth uh, in programs in Navy. But generally, um, you know, the emphasis um, out of the Navy is always on program management and life cycle management of whatever the system is that you're working. And so it gives you an emphasis and a perspective that doesn't tie you down to a particular type of methodology. You know, I'm not married to earned value management necessarily. Right. Sure. Uh, married to any particular uh, methodology, I'm I'm after the best methodology. Now, does that mean that earned value management is unimportant? Absolutely not. It is extremely important, and I advocate um, its use wherever it's appropriate, which is in probably ninety percent of projects that are complex. Um, but you know, there are probably other things that we need to be looking at uh, as well, and you know, from a holistic perspective. I want to thank Nick for coming on the show. I want to thank him for the insight that he's provided to us as the audience. And uh, I want to remind everybody to have a great rest of your 2019, 2020. Please don't forget to go onto iTunes and give us a like, a rating, and a review. Thank you so much. We'll see you in the next episode.